No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Ever Google what to do when an ex-boyfriend rejects your extended olive branch? The first storyteller in this throwback podcast did, before peeling herself off the floor to attend a book signing in an attempt to get her groove back, or at least to get moving. First up from our alum swap is Waiting for Sedaris, written by Shelley Gazes and performed by Mark Woolett. Well, our first author this evening is Shelley Gazes. And Shelley, I thought that in our alumni workshop, you had a very interesting uh, way of expressing like what it was like. Because when we meet in the room, you know, we read each other's stories out loud, so a lot of times we're hearing it for the first time, we don't know what it's about. You had a very fun system for what you thought <laughs> as far as like the, the different flags that go up as, as you go through the story and how you might adjust your tone, so I thought maybe you could share with us. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, I I said, whenever I start reading something, I think I tend to naturally have kind of a little sarcastic, like, peppy tone to my voice, but then, like, I might get to a point halfway through where I realize that is totally not the appropriate tone. And I feel like the authors need to have these little flags, like, green flag is like, this is a funny thing. Red flag is like, this is sad. Like, you know, yellow or white, like, just do a neutral tone, so that would be really useful, so, um, I think we need to work on that for future <laughs> events. Great. And I realize as I'm about to introduce it, I don't. This is so new to us. This on the spot story swap. That I have no clue what the title of your story is. The title of this story is "Waiting for Sedaris." Yes. So the first story of this evening is "Waiting for Sedaris," written by Shelley Gazes and performed by Mark Woolley. <laughs> Waiting for Sedaris. During the weeks after the ex-boyfriend I'd increasingly regretted ending things with had said no when I'd asked if we could talk about trying again, I'd found myself doing some strange things, like getting home from work and just lying on the living room floor for a couple of hours. (laughs) And heating up and mindlessly consuming cocktail pigs in a blanket while Googling things like what to do when an ex-boyfriend rejects your extended olive branch and binge reading the results as though these random internet articles would somehow reveal the one true answer for how to feel better. They did not. However, One common thread in those pieces stuck with me, namely, when in the midst of a single woman wallowing moment, it's important to go out and do something really rewarding for yourself, like take a class or go on a trip, something engaging to get out of your own head. I didn't do anything grand like book a trip to Italy or sign up to learn Mandarin. There was no eat, pray, love moment. But I did wind up on a Friday night by myself standing online to meet David Sedaris at a bookstore. I'd read all his books over the years, and I hadn't had a chance to see him in person yet. This would be rewarding and fun. I get online at 6 o'clock, and after a while, I feel several light taps on my shoulder. I turn around to find a toddler with Down syndrome smiling at me. This curly, blonde little boy is cradled by an elderly woman, 
I smile back and turn away, but he taps my shoulder again. When I turn to him, he's still smiling. This little game continues. Sometimes I wait until he taps my shoulder to react. Sometimes I beat him to the punch and turn around just as he's reading his hand, reaching his hand to my shoulder. He laughs heartily at this. Finally, the woman says, okay, enough, and gently holds his hands down as she sings a French medley of Alouette, Frère Jacques. Every so often, someone stops by the line and asks what everyone's waiting for. When anyone asks the woman this question, she answers simply, books. <laughs> yes, but whose book, someone says She doesn't answer, so I say, David Sedaris. She registers no reaction to this information. And it's about then that I start to wonder, what is this pair doing in line? Should I make sure she hasn't had a misunderstanding? But it would sound rude to ask, Excuse me, do you know what you're waiting in line for? And what if she snapped back at me in unexpectedly perfect English? Of course I know what I'm waiting in line for. What do you take me for, an idiot? Then she'd be mad, and it would be awkward for us to continue standing next to one another for the next few hours. <laughs> so, I say nothing. After those of us standing online are herded into the store, I notice that the woman and toddler behind me are gone. I feel bad, assuming she realized upon entering the store that she had, in fact, been standing in line for nothing. I should have said something. As far as I can see, I'm surrounded by pairs of people. There's no one else standing in the line alone. I think of the other piece of recurring advice in the single woman wallowing articles. Doing activities of interest is a possible way to make a romantic connection. Even my ex, explaining that we just weren't the right match for the long term, figured it would help to tell me, just keep doing what you like and you'll meet the right guy. At about 7.30, an employee announces through a microphone that in honor of the title of David Sedaris's current book, Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls, anyone with, <laughs> anyone with diabetes can jump to the front of the line to meet him. I know it's been a long wait, and I don't want anyone's insulin to flip out, adds David Sedaris. At about 8.30, the table is still beyond reach, but at least it's in my sight line. And then, I notice someone being escorted to the front of the table. Curious, I stand on my tiptoes to see better and realize, it's the woman with the toddler. They're back! Where have they been all this time? Why the preferential treatment now? Does one of them have diabetes? I'm nowhere near close enough to hear their discussion, but after a few minutes, the woman walks off smiling, the boy sipping from a can of 7-Up. David Sedaris looks happy, but from my angle, it doesn't even look like the woman is carrying a book. <laughs> after about four hours in line, I'm almost at the table to meet David Sedaris. It's taking this long because he's not just signing books. He's engaging in very extended conversation with everyone he meets. But I'm not discouraged by the wait, and I've used my time to meditatively construct what I'm confident is going to be the perfectly witty, lovely, friendly exchange to have. When David Sedaris asks what my story is, I plan on talking about how I work in English as a second language publishing. I think we'll connect over that because he's written essays about trying to learn different languages, like French and Japanese. 
At about 9.45, all that stands between me and David Sedaris is the woman in front of me. Her name is Lizette. <coughs> I know immediately that I stand no chance at being as charming as Lizette because David Sedaris is instantly taken by her. He says she has such a beautiful name, and he asks where she's from, and he says he loves her Bronx accent, and he compliments her outfit, asking her if it's what she wore to work that day. She says, of course. And I then watch Lizette stand up on a chair so that David Sedaris can get a better look at her ensemble. <laughs> An unspectacular long black knit dress and denim jacket. I look down and no, he's not going to ask anything about my T-shirt and jeans. Okay. Eventually, Lizette gets off the chair, and they keep talking because he's really pulling out her whole life story. When she says she has four sons, David Sedaris thinks this is amazing. <laughs> he, he rustles around in a little tote bag he has on the floor next to him. He pulls out a small orange plastic figurine, triumphantly announcing, This is a break dancer. It's for your boys. Apparently, he's giving out party gifts now. Lizette leaves very happily with her book and breakdancer, and then I'm up. I step up to the table, I put my book down, and I smile. I'm ready to tell David Sedaris my life story. But he turns away from me, and he starts talking to the store employee standing next to him. And he says, I really liked her, and we've met so many Lizettes tonight. <laughs> as though there's some sort of statistical probability in which people named Lizette are more likely to be David Sedaris fans than people with any other name. <laughs> but then he gets a little concerned, furrowing his brow, and he asks, Oh, do you think that was bad what I wrote in your book? On a scale of one to ten, how bad was that? <laughs> the woman next to him shrugs and says, Oh, uh, on the creepy scale? Um, it was like a five. <laughs> I don't know exactly what he wrote in her book, but I do know at one point he asked Lizette what the Spanish word for shit was. <laughs> he continues talking to the woman, and he says, Sometimes I worry about the things I write in people's books. Now, I've just been standing there with this frozen smile, but I take this as my opening, and I practically blurt out, I heard you talking about that on NPR. I'd recently listened to an interview in which he discussed his fear of writing the wrong thing and having it come back to bite him. Only, I really blurt mumbled it, and <laughs> David Sedaris just kind of turns and looks at me as though he's realizing for the first time that I'm actually standing there. <laughs> he sighs and cracks open my book. As he starts to sign the title page, he says, Yeah, I usually feel like I need to feel people out to see what they'd be open to. I just nod and say, well, that's important. <laughs> <laughs> we stare at each other for a few beats, and I feel my whole conversation evaporating because by this point, I'm dehydrated, there's a knot in my back, and my foot has been cramped for at least the past hour. <laughs> then he starts drawing a little picture, and he narrates, saying, so this is a snail. Mm-hmm, I say. Then he says, and it's a pregnant snail. <laughs> oh, I say. And then he starts drawing a little building in the background and says, but it has to get to the abortion clinic before it's too late. 
All I say is, oh, I, I wonder how many baby snails even have at a time. But I'm, I'm really thinking, I, I wonder what it is about me. <laughs> briefly feeling me out. Made David Sedaris think, aha, this is the person who's a perfect match for my pregnant but in search of an abortion snail. <laughs> then I realize he's just about done drawing and we haven't talked about anything. We have not discussed my life the way he did with Lizette, and there's been no present out of the tote bag. So I blurt out something about ESL. Oh, have you ever listened to tapes that teach English? No. Why? He asks. Because I make them. <laughs> he gives me another look, and I can tell that, like my ex, David Sedaris is so totally done with me so when he hands me my book, I simply thank him and hobble off on my cramped up foot. On the train ride home later, I open the book and I look at the picture again. And I start spontaneously crying. I should feel better that this little snail was not the reward I was hoping for. <laughs> I should have just booked that trip to Italy. <laughs> Switching it up, we find our second storyteller in an awkward meeting with his fiancée's older relatives. Crowded in a hot Iowa living room, dimmed by an ex-husband's shadow, a near-death experience makes for a memorable afternoon. Our second story, written by Mark Woollett and performed by Shelley Gazes at QED Astoria, is Olive. My question for you is, I remember you had a very distinct skill. We did a, we did a tour of Hamlet together through schools. And Mark is the only person I've ever met that can kind of improv in iambic pentameter. Like if he, if he goes up or he whatever, like he just like slides or like makes up new stuff, but it's all in. So I was wondering if you have like a like a best example of like a time when like oh, something gosh. crazy happened and you were just like barding it up. <laughs> you know the thing is, I never know what I'm saying. <laughs> you know that's the thing. I I, I was when any, whenever anyone talks about this, I get afraid because I expect them to ask me to like see show, show us how you can do it. And it's like it's nothing that I consciously. Like, no, I can do. It's just that I'm on stage talking, and then I don't know what the lines are, but I just keep talking. <laughs> and then somehow it sort of makes sense, perhaps. Do you have a time where you got on stage where somebody's like, that oh, was amazing, and you're like, what? Just, I don't know. <laughs> well, there's, some, there's been some very funny Shakespeare ad-libs. You know, there's the... Um, there's the, 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 in uh, Julius Caesar, there's a big fight scene between Brutus and Cassius. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Brutus and Cassius are really going on it. And in the middle of the scene, I suddenly just couldn't remember the next line. So I just said, bring it on! <laughs> Great, we'll take a seat and bring it on. We will hear Olive, written by Mark Woollett and performed by Shelley Gazes. Olive. I had been swallowed by the couch. Across from me, in folding chairs, were three excessively nice ladies. Old, older, and oldest. The living room was small and cramped, the window open just a crack, 
allowing the oppressively hot Iowa stagnation to creep into the room. Sharing a sweat with me on the couch was Candace, my soon-to-be wife, and since these were her relatives, she was doing most of the heavy lifting in this awkward conversation. I sat there with a weary smile stuck to my face, trying to nod when appropriate. Candace loved these Iowa relatives, but honestly didn't know them all that well. Linda and Cindy were cousins or second cousins or something like that, but the reason for the visit, the whole point of the day, the inspiration for this strange divergence, was her grandma's youngest sister. Her name was Olive. Coming in the door, we had been met with customary charm. Smiles and greetings. Did we want something to drink to use the bathroom? This was directed towards Candace. I was the second husband, after all, and although they probably only met the first husband a couple of times, I could see their cautious brains making the calculations. Is it really worth learning this guy's name? Maybe, maybe we'll never see him again. Despite my discomfort there on the couch, however, I can't honestly say that I was offended. One of the reasons I have been so successful with Candace is that I try to keep some perspective about all those previous relationships, particularly her 11-year marriage. Honor all past intimacies. That's a good piece of advice that has served me well. For Candace, Iowa was the most important stop in our week-long drive across the country. Olive bore a striking resemblance to Candace's grandma, whom she adored. Her grandma had passed away in her 90s, about eight years previous to this, just before I came into the picture. Olive was a visceral connection to the grandma that she loved and missed so much. It had already been a long day for Candace and me. Today's lunch in Des Moines followed last night in Wyoming. A nine and a half hour drive. That's nuts, I had said to Candace. I know, she said, but things with Oliver are a little delicate. So after a night carousing the sights and sounds of Laramie with our socially starved friend Debbie, we roused ourselves at 3 a.m. and hit the road 30 minutes later, nonstop screaming across Nebraska, hell-bent for lunch with the ladies. As you can imagine, sitting there bleary-eyed on the couch, I was starving. <laughs> Actors, says Perky Cindy, wagging her head with vague understanding. Tell us about this drive across the country. What's happening this summer? The most obvious thing to talk about was our upcoming wedding, planned for August 9th. This was another theater summer for the two of us, so our wedding would literally take place on stage. Candace and I would be playing Kate and Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew, and at the close of the Saturday performance, we'd ask the audience to remain in their seats and then we'd have our marriage ceremony right there in costume. We'd take our vows, and then we'd take our vows. <laughs> the whole cast would stand up there behind us, and since it was the taming of the shrew, our friend who would officiate the ceremony dubbed it the taming of the two. Now, if you're into Shakespeare and theater as much as we are, this was to be the coolest thing ever. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a lovely party, said Linda. <laughs> you sure do have a big summer, said Cindy. <laughs> Didn't your first wedding take place on an island, asked Olive. <laughs> now, perhaps for them, a theater wedding was strange and, and hard to imagine, and I think they were still wary of me. Who is this guy? What happened to that first husband? What was his name? 
Olive was tall and proud and had been an attractive woman in her youth. Since she was Candace's grandma's youngest sister, she was the baby of the family and had been doted on by everyone. Now, however, she was old and frail, the last surviving member of her generation. This is such a cozy apartment, brave Candace. How long have you lived here? Olive beamed and blushed. Well, I can't really say. A while, I guess. With an edgy smirk, Linda jumped in. Yes, Mom, you've been here a good long while. Although getting on in years herself, Linda was working full-time. She was unmarried, perhaps divorced, and a chunk of her past decade had been sacrificed in the role of caretaker. Perky Cindy breezily directed her comment to Olive. Yes, I've always admired how well you keep this place together. Linda bristled, and eventually, mercifully, it was time to eat. Thank God. We shifted over to the dining area, and instantly, the mayonnaise-based salad started pouring out of the fridge. <laughs> Potato salad, macaroni salad, coleslaw, you get the idea. There were cold cuts, of course, and American cheese, uh, grapes, those funny little pickles. It was a big spread. Did I mention that I was hungry? <laughs> we crowded into our chairs around the delicate dishes. As we passed the salads and began to spread mayonnaise onto white bread, <laughs> Olive took a breath and looked right at me. She smiled, taking me in, and asked me about the teaching I had done this past semester and why I liked Shakespeare so much. Shakespeare, she pondered. Why Shakespeare? <laughs> I knew this moment would come, that attention would inevitably turn to me. Given an opening, I had a great deal of confidence in my ability to charm these women. But before I could launch into my passionate speech, Olive paused and put both hands up. Her eyes rolled into a crazed vacancy. It was as if she had turned into an alien, and the look on her face was not altogether human. She fixed a stare for a second, and then blurted out, There's something wrong. Bang! Immediately, Olive's head flipped back violently. Her whole body heaved to the sky for a second, and then she slumped into her chair. I thought she was dying, and that was accurate. Bang! Her chest heaved again, and by that time, daughter Linda was calling 911. Struggling to hear the people on the phone as she ran around the table to help her mother, she couldn't figure out how to tell the dispatch where we were. I grabbed the phone out of her hands and relayed the address, still the top screen on my new smartphone, which had guided us to the location. As we hung up, Olive was alive pleasantly sitting in her chair. She stared at the four of us, braced around the table, shoulders up around our ears. Well, don't everyone get excited? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, Olive was feeling much better. Fighting for breath, Linda explained what had happened, that the two violent heaves were actually Olive's defibrillator going off. There had been a fatal irregularity in her heart, and the little gadget in her chest had jolted her back to life. With only the vaguest notions of what a defibrillator actually does, I was amazed. Lunch seemed somewhat in jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> the paramedics would be there soon, and I didn't know what would happen, so I started eating. <laughs> the others stared at me, but Olive was very encouraging. We've got all this food, so you may as well eat it up. It seemed as though our precious visit would be cut short, but once the paramedics came to get Olive, Linda and Cindy grabbing their keys in hot pursuit, they urged us to find them at the emergency room. 
After cleaning up the lunch, however, we took a breath and almost went straight to the hotel. Those ladies needed space, and maybe we wouldn't even get to see all of them. At the hospital, however, we were immediately ushered through hallways, past all the crazy machinery of modern medicine. There were all the smells of bleach and rubbing alcohol, and we'd catch stark glimpses of humanity lying in hospital beds, and nurses bustling from station to station. And suddenly, there was Olive, comfortably reclining in her bed, the delicate covers barely concealing her twig-like bones and skin. Her bare shoulders were exposed, and I don't know how else to say it, but there was barely anything left. How could a person, a whole life, exist in such a tiny, delicate shell? Was this the same woman that had busily served us lunch just an hour ago? Her face lit up, however, when she saw us, and her eyes burned bright, her lips curling into a friendly smile. Both Linda and Cindy leapt up from their chairs, genuinely pleased, even thrilled to see us, glad that we had taken the trouble to come down to the hospital. Olive begged us to come close so she could hold our hands and chat. Her shoulders were so frail that we could literally see the square defibrillator underneath her skin. Holding a wand up to it, however, the doctor accessed data via Bluetooth, and on the monitor she showed us the complete record of every single heartbeat from the past ten months. Scrolling through all those mostly regular heartbeats, she zeroed in on this afternoon's data, and we could clearly see that something had gone wrong just as we had sat down to lunch. Then you could see the first jolt, the first moment when Olive had convulsed, immediately followed by her slumping into her chair. The doctor pointed out that this was the moment when she was rapidly approaching death. But then the second jolt brought her heart back into its regular beat. It was a visual representation of exactly what we had witnessed. That little box beneath Olive's skin had saved her life. The next four hours were an unadulterated delight. We retold the story of Olive's defibrillator many times, keenly interested in what each one of us was thinking and doing in that dramatic moment. We reenacted the whole scene there in the hospital room, processing our fear and allowing our bodies and emotions to catch up with the knowledge of what had happened. Linda shared how her adrenaline had shot through her brain even before she consciously knew what was happening to Olive. I was hailed as a hero for grabbing the phone and for immediately knowing how to access the address for the dispatchers. Over and over we laughed and repeated Olive's words from the lunch table. Well, don't everyone get excited? <laughs> Olive was tired, but she loved the attention. She was the center of an exciting afternoon of drama. Shakespeare had nothing on this. In fact, those Iowa ladies knew more about theater than they would have dreamed. Our lunch event had become a story that healed us with each retelling, and it bonded us together with our shared experience. Considering what she had gone through, Olive was doing fine. The doctor said that her defibrillator had done exactly what it was designed to do, and in fact it was time to replace the battery. They scheduled an operation that would occur in the next few days. We haven't seen those ladies since that afternoon, and Olive passed away a few years later. In those short hours, however, we shared a profound experience. In that precious snapshot, we all grasped onto a frail strand of humanity that brought us together. I often throw around this idea that we are all, in fact, connected and that 
Our individuality is an illusion, but it's rare for me to actually experience it. In that moment, I was jolted into community, the real thing, much the same way that Olive was jolted back to life that sweaty afternoon in Des Moines. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com. <laughs>